0: The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Vinhook for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there! Hi, everyone. This is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by Goldspot Discoveries. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in Petroscience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. Magmatic sulfide deposits is our big theme today, and we wanted to let you know about a special symposium coming up in May 2022. The Virtual Platinum Symposium is run by early career researchers for early career researchers. There will be three days of student talks and keynotes by postdocs in the field, and it's a prequel to the main Platinum Symposium scheduled for 2023. An added benefit are the pre- and post-conference workshops to develop skills in software and methods relevant to magmatic sulfide research. Special thanks to IAGOD for sponsoring and senior researchers in the field who have offered to provide feedback to students submitting abstracts. If you're interested in hearing about the event or submitting an abstract, Head over to the Mag M A G S U L—website hosted by Laurentian University, or find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Platt Symposium 2022. That's P L A T Symposium 2022. Today, we're really thrilled to bring you three guests who provide insights into intriguing developments in our understanding of magmatic sulfide deposits, from fundamental research to critical factors in exploration. First. We spoke to Peter Lightfoot of Lightfoot Geoscience, Inc., and was also an adjunct professor at Western University. Peter's career has combined research and exploration in an unusual way, and he has great insights. What hooked you into the, the world of magmatic sulfides?
1: That's been a really interesting question. I, I have to ponder this one a little bit, but, you know, starting off, I had a fascination with geology as a kid. I, I lived in South Wales, a really beautiful part of the world. There were lots of structures and lots of complicated carbonate sequence and fossils and everything. And I just loved it as a kid, a really majestic geology. And my parents were, were the type of person who uh, wanted me to have the life I wanted and wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so they gave me the full full capability to go and either ruin myself or actually make something with my career. I caught on about science pretty late. I was a, a slow developer in early school. And finally, I, I realized the value of science. I had a really great geography teacher, as most geologists probably do at one point in their life, a guy called Terry Morgan, who just got me so into the landscape and, and the impact of geology on landscape. That that set me up. I chose not to go and do geography. You know, I wanted to go do geology. Um, I landed up at Oxford, and uh, that was a pretty dynamic place to be back in those days. There were all sorts of people Doing really exciting research, like the early days of uranium lead geochronology and flood and, uh, basalt research and things like that—all all, the sort of interesting stuff. But in my third year, there was this uh, chap who was squirreled away in an office on the third floor, and a guy called Dick Stanton, and you know, the father of economic geology. And my view. I introduced myself. I ended up with a couple of seasons of uh, tutorials with the guy. Really interesting guy because he had incredibly unorthodox ideas about how ore deposits were formed. And it was really great to hear someone questioning continental drift and saying, well, how does it all fit together? And how do these (laughs) ore bodies fit into this this story? And Dick was very formative in my interest in in, uh, ore deposits. And uh, he's the guy who basically introduced me to Tony Noldrup. Who also was on sabbatical at around about the same time. Right. Tony was, you know, he was oh another nickel student here. So I, <laughs> we soon hooked up, and I I agreed to uh, to go to Toronto. I have a really exciting project on the NCs were complex to work on, and it got me into the whole world of world of nickel. Tony's team at U of T was just a it was a workhorse team, strong competition, great work ethic. Everyone was. Really doing great thesis topics, and I, I so benefited from that. That that really dynamic environment for uh, for two years, and finished off there, and uh, that was that was real fun. But I I kind of the one thing I didn't want to do was spend my life doing courses. I actually wanted to do research, right. and that's what took me back to the UK to do my PhD. I wanted to escape the course circle, and uh, Chris Hawkes took me on to do a project. Um, I kind of was interested in flood basalts by that time. Because in Cesar is in the roots of the Peru so Basalt Province, so yep. it looked well. Zekan Trap, another good example. So went off to do that and spent uh, it about two and a half years in Milton Keynes working with uh, Chris. Very much a, a geochemistry study, no, no economic implications. But it turned out that was all formative stuff about how you use that type of science in understanding the geochemistry of. Uh, of all deposits, so.
0: and gave you a foundation to to carry on to the next step.
1: Well, so yeah, it was total foundation, and uh, <laughs> during that, I kept in touch in Toronto. I, I came back <laughs> right after finishing, got married, and then uh, carried on working as a postdoc with Tony.
0: That was a very clever of you, actually. That plan you you hatched. <laughs>
1: It was carefully um, carefully worked out and all <laughs> came It was great, Tony. Tony had already by that point in time. Developed some quite serious contacts in the Soviet Academy of Sciences. He wanted to work on Norilsk. He was—he was really—it was the one ore deposit, the one nickel system. He wanted to get to work on, and uh, he had a a visiting scientist um, in an exchange program, a guy called Nick Gorbachev. Nick and I just connected, and Nick started bringing basalt samples over in aeroflot flights, which was just fantastic. (laughs) Like whole (laughs) stratigraphies of the flood basalts, which after my deckhand stuff just just was perfect and. that basically was the start of a, start of a serious neuros project, where we, we started to receive increasingly large numbers of samples. And then we started to get samples from the ore bodies themselves and uh, work through and understand the relationship between the basalts, um, the intrusions and the mineralization. So it was a pretty exciting time. It was the uh, the period of uh, perestroika and glasnost and glasnost. Uh, yeah. Everything was opening, and the, yeah, that, everything was yeah. opening, and it was a fantastic time. Everyone wanted to talk to you and understand Western science and help you to to apply new technologies in analyzing samples and new ideas and understanding all bodies. So it was just just fantastic. The real thing that made the biggest difference for me at that time was access to a relatively new technology called inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, ICPMS and uh, at the time it was around but not really developed very well for geological materials and one of my colleagues will doherty basically set up one of the early systems to be able to determine very low abundances of elements with very high precision and accuracy and that triggered a pile of papers that uh, came out of that in the recognition of the metal depletion signal in the basaltic rocks at Rilsk. So it was um, a really exciting uh, exciting time that, that opened a lot of other opportunities. And, you know, I could rattle on forever here, but it opened up the door to West Greenland, to uh, the Mid-Continent Rift, and to ultimately working on Sudbury. So the themes came through. And, you know, when you think about research and you go, i am doing a research project one year, two years, three years. This has been a research project of a lifetime now to work through and understand these different relationships.
0: Right. But somewhere in there, I mean, it's a lifetime of research, but in actual fact, you ended up in industry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm from listening to mind. your talk, you wouldn't actually peg you as an industry exploration geologist, which no, you, you are
1: and a very good one. I've been in um, you know, I started my career as a postdoc. I did about 10 years with geological survey looking after analytical methods and then understanding the geology of Nickel in Ontario. But it was really the discovery of Voices Bay that got me hang on a minute, I need to change my theme and become an exploration geologist, much more much more fun, much more dynamic. And I was offered the position at INCO at the time to work on Boises Bay, just before the acquisition by Diamond Fields. And that's... Right. That
0: That was exciting. It was exciting times for Canada uh, as a whole. yeah,
1: Yeah. So that opened the door and I ended up just falling in love with exploration. Ever since then, that's been my main driver. But... Underpinning all of that has been all of this knowledge of the ore deposits, knowledge of the mineral systems and the applications of new technologies like geochemistry in supporting exploration. So if I hadn't spent the first formative part of my career, you know, 10 or 15 years, including academia, to set me up, I probably wouldn't have been able to bring that into my experience in exploration. Side note here to set the scene. The foundational model for magmatic
0: sulfides requires separation of a sulfide melt from mafic or ultramafic magmas, in many cases where the source of sulfur is external to the magma and concentration of the sulfides into feeders, channels, or layers. The more dynamic the phases of magma and crustal interaction, the more likely the deposit will be of value. In many ways, this is one of the most quantitative ore deposit models we have. Given his unique experience, I asked Peter to provide his perspective on the model and the advancements over the last 20
1: to 30 years. So, as I've said, my my view of of the models of formation of nickel sulfide ore deposits have been heavily tainted by my experience as an exploration geologist rather than as as an academic. And so the things I might focus on as being pivotal may be different to the ones other people Would select who are who are more concerned with understanding the physics and chemistry of the actual processes. I'm I'm looking for the signals that what can I use, and so that that's really been that's been at the heart of me trying to trying to understand these systems. I could list probably five things that have been really critical. I'm going to start off by the you know with the one that really it's in the news everywhere at the moment, and that's the concept of a mineral system. An ore deposit isn't just an ore deposit; it's part of a bigger geological system. And the only way you understand the ore deposit is if you understand the rocks that contain the ore deposit. A lot of my research started off with the container rocks, without actually focusing necessarily on the ore bodies. That happened at Sudbury, and it happened at um, at Norilsk, where I was driven by actually interesting rocks. You, you were you were in the outside. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was in the outside, but I knew the systems were there. I just felt. Uh, hang on a minute well do i want to just go and look at the mineralization no and i couldn't get to the mineralization as easily as i could get to the container rocks and so right. that that also helped things along the actual you know the examples of how that worked out at norilsk really interesting a series of basalts a new and what at the time was a new analytical method all came together to provide an approach using chemostratigraphy to understand how the rocks were formed and then accidentally, more than anything, falling over the fact that a large part of the sequence had really low nickel, copper, cobalt, platinum, palladium, and gold abundances, far below what you'd expect in a vessel. I kind of recognized that. And with, you know, Tony, Tony was really, he, he was absolutely shocked by it. He, he he thought it was incredibly significant. And I, I thought, yeah, it's, it's pretty important. Probably. Something to do with the ore deposits, I'm fairly sure. Probably. Just <laughs> me going. You know, I'm not thinking then as an explorationist, but um, you know, once once that nut was cracked, though, and, and you realize the significance, then you look around the world and go, well, where else can I find rocks like this? And West Greenland was a great place where the uh, the Disco package had this signal, and and then I thought, well, at Sudbury, where does all that metal come from? So better I'd go and analyze the Sudbury igneous complex, and bingo, it. It also
0: it's depleted
1: shows, it as well, yeah right. de- signal, so it it's really neat to be able to go around and actually to actually recognize this signal in in multiple different locations, but it wouldn't be possible if you didn't have the, the heart of a mineral system in the you know the root of it right the, the second thing that fundamentally what what was pivotal to me really is big data as an industry exploration geologist, you can have databases with hundreds of thousands of analyses and tens of thousands of drill holes. Um, You can have three-dimensional models. You can fit everything in and understand what is irrelevant and what is important in the system. And you you can build an understanding. Without that model, you're lost. The downside of that is every deposit has such a giant database that you can get lost in data, totally lost in data, which is, which is why I, I'm really heavily into data science and machine learning applications because I want to unpick the, all of these details and see what matters right. without having to do the, um, what I refer to as machine, Peter, going through, all, <laughs> or going through all of the data myself. I want software to be able to do this one day.
0: But I think in economic geology, we don't even know yet what the impact of having all that data will be huh. on our understanding of processes.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, big data is really important. Um, analytical methods to me were the most fundamental thing. If I, if the new technologies of ICP had not come along, I, I hate to think where we would be. It really has revolutionized the understanding of nickel models to be able to do chemical stratigraphies through intrusions, yeah. through our bodies and through the associated yeah. if we
0: were still on the microprobe dialing at these
1: analog dials oh, <laughs> that I remember at U of T. <laughs> absolutely yes doing the spectrometers back on yeah yep. all night long so I'm almost down my list now I think the, the fourth one was structural geology and right. where I, I think nickel nickel experts have tended to put structural geology a bit to one side it's not been at the at the heart of what they what they embrace.
0: I have this possibly false impression of nickel experts as all being petrologists. Yeah. You know, it's all about the anorthosite and the cumulates. That, that goes back to my early history of listening to lectures in 1981 yeah. from Tony. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 I, that's what I, I think you're right. I, I was fortunate um in my career to work with a guy called Rogerio Montero. He opened my, my eyes to what to look for in all bodies and the container rocks. In terms of structure and the sorts of processes that control mineralization. And it it was fundamental in understanding the importance of open space created on cross-linking faults, for example, in trans in uh, transcurrent faults, right. fault settings, or the effect of folding on the creation of space. All these things are really important, I think, and have added enormously to not just understanding nickel systems, but lots of other ore deposit types, as those types of structures are really important in things like iron oxide, copper, gold, porphyry, you yeah. name it. So absolutely it's a yeah. critical yeah. thing. The, the final one on my hit list <laughs> of um, of model, you know, things that have developed, which I think are really significant is the recognition of hydrothermal nickel. And this is something that probably 10 years ago, people would have been reluctant to believe that large quantities of metal could be concentrated in fluids. And now we have great examples from Carajás Belt and Jaguar and GTM um, 34, as well as enterprise in the uh, in the Zambia copper belt, really interesting and opens opens the door to actually understanding nickel deposits in a totally different way. So, yeah. it kind of bridges a gap between magmatic and a hydrothermal systems in a in a structural it, context.
0: Right. Yeah. Talk about mineral systems, and it, it totally expands our perspective.
1: And, right. Yeah. Right. And undoubtedly, how one might explore all those things are things that are close to my heart as it. As, as exploration tools, as well as right. being important. It's fundamental basic science is critical. Great geological mapping, the collection of high-quality geoscience data is still the root of the whole growth of new models. Models models require data, and data requires a lot of effort. Uh, that's why being in industry is such a massive advantage in terms of the quantity of data. There are places, I think, where models will be improved into the future. I I think geoanalysis is continually, methods are improving and the ability to handle smaller and smaller domains within minerals and unpick the details using multiple elements and even isotope ratios, it's unreal. A lot of people are running around doing nickel and copper isotopes these days on different systems. What are, what are they learning? What are they learning? They're looking at rocks that show a range in composition that are linked to what are um, what are recognized as processes. And at the moment, those processes are not recognized as processes that can create isotopic differences in the ratios of metals like nickel and copper. So they're, they're trying to unpick what's causing that and what signal you'd be looking for
0: so we see the differences and yeah. we know there's processes but we don't actually know what's causing no. what yet
1: exactly. right there are there are game changers that you know in the recent past during my career things like electromagnetic methodologies and airborne gravity surveys have had such an enormous wealth of data in, in terms of understanding the um, earth structure and understanding the container rock distribution and the your body distribution so it's right. it's a range of different technologies that help to resolve things at, at different levels you know it's all it's part of the there's it, always a difficult thing you you can go with a very specific problem and try and solve the problem and, and you can also go and say well I have an analytical tool here which can really do something new and I'm going to find out whether or not differences exist in nature and I think that's where the world is at in a lot of this at the moment rather than rather than having right. crack problems so. It's a geo geoanalysis thing to me. That's that's really neat. Right. So some of the things that really are interesting that are coming out of work that's been completed in the Norwich Belt of West Greenland, the Granville, the Fraser Range, are the these high grade ore deposits of nickel, things like Nova Bollinger. You know, they don't fit into quite the, the traditional view. And the work that's been going on around, around the role of metamorphic processes in the formation of, of magmatic type. Sulfides, metamorphic, mag- magmatic type sulfides is really right. important. It, it kind of also stretches to to Thompson. I mean, the the high grade Thompson ores wouldn't be there but for really high pressure remobilization, high, high PT conditions, which were so critical in their formation. So it, this is all new and quite exciting and not not yet entirely understood. I don't understand how the Thompson ore bodies were formed yet. I wish I did, but there's a there's a, a wealth of understanding to come. From understanding plastic the kinesis of sulfide from one location to another under high PT conditions.
0: It's easy to think that some of these mineral systems, like the magmatic sulfide one, for me is just ingrained in tight. But what you've just explained there is is a whole raft of whole raft. ideas and and processes to be thought about and incorporated.
1: That's right. And the, you know the sulfur sulfur salt control on precious metals. You know the old tra- old tra- traditional view was. Oh, all these metals are controlled by the um, different sulphide minerals and magmatic yeah. sulphur, whereas most of the PGE variations are in tellurides, bismuthides, arsenides. There's something going on here that is is very, very deep and very interesting. And around that is the whole question about why are some ore deposits rich in precious metals and others are not? There are just a few that really are high-grade PGE systems, like Norilsk, like some of the Sudbury ore deposits. The fascinating majority are almost bereft of elements that, to be quite frank, based on traditional partitioning should be there. There's something we're missing in our models there, explaining those variations. So hey, I could probably go on with another 15 or 20. With Peter's unusual career, before
0: I let him sign off, I wanted to find out what parting words he has for early career
1: geoscientists. I, I would always encourage young geoscientists, go and contribute Take take your contribution as a professional geoscientist of time and energy in educating and helping the world. Take it seriously. Don't just close your door on the uh, university once you get your degree and forget about everything. Go you know keep 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 people engaged. Keep projects going. That engagement it's absolutely uh, it it will it will reward you ten times over. The the other thing too often you can get very caught up in a small world your own world of of your own expertise a microcosm of the bigger picture of, of a deposit geology it's like being in the mineral system looking at the, the grain of chalcopyrite and forgetting about everything else i would i would recommend against that i would recommend always to look at look at your world in a bigger a bigger way don't get caught up in the little questions and most importantly don't get caught up in in academic bickering and infighting on the relative importance of different models. Find the common ground and find the way forward is my recommendation. Yeah. I've just seen this so many times that the models get compartmentalized to the point at which no one's listening to each other. And that's, uh, that's been a, something that I've, I've hated. I, I'm quite happy to worry about hydrothermal as well as magmatic processes. And I, I value enormously the time I spent working with Igor Sotov who was one of Korshinsky's students from the Russian Academy of Sciences. And he, he taught me a lot about how fluids might actually play a role in magmatic processes. You can have a really wild viewpoint and come up with some really interesting new models if you, if you have an open mind.
0: Our next guest is this year's Lindgren Award winner of the SEG and currently a research scientist at CSIRO in Western Australia. She's working with a team who are making new observations at the massive Nurel score body with implications for mineralization and the Permian-Triassic extinction.
2: So my name is Margot Levaillant, with a French accent. So how did I end up in WA? So I started my studies back in France, just undergrads and everything, then moved to Finland and Sweden for masters because they were doing more exploration-focused masters over there. And then I think I just wasn't ready for industry or for work. And I wanted to keep on studying, keep on learning. And so that's when I decided to go for a PhD, even though I thought when I was younger, there was nowhere where I would be smart enough to be a research scientist. But I realized after that it's just more specialized, not smarter. <laughs> and so I applied for PhD projects. Both, I think I looked for Canada and Australia, but Australia won because I had been in Finland and Sweden for two years and I was sick of the cold. So the sunshine won, and then I had two opportunities, one in Melbourne and one in, in Perth. And the sunshine won again. <laughs> I came to UWA to work with Marco Fiorentini and Steve Barnes on a, a project on commodity Hosted Systems. It just sounded really interesting, like talking about this old volcanic flows and the associated ore bodies and everything. And I had never worked on any of those systems before, and I was just like, wait, that sounds cool. <laughs> so oh, right. that's how I, I got into it. And then got stuck in there yeah i think it is
0: an area of our science that sort of grabs people and keeps them once you get into the intricacies of it and start to understand the processes
2: yeah the more i work on them the more i find them fascinating to just talking thinking about these old volcanoes and the old lava flows and it just grabs the, the imagination i think and then i just stayed in WA, I kept on working with Steve on my medical intrusion-hosted systems when I joined CSIRO for my postdoc, and I just stayed on. And I'm now still working a lot, actually, on my medical sulfide systems, but over a whole range of different projects as a research scientist and with CSIRO.
0: So the work with Steve, is that the work on Nyrilsk that you've been doing? Yes.
2: Okay. Uh, some of it, yes. Well, actually, uh, Steve's been involved in most of the work I've been doing at Norilsk, definitely. Yes. Right. But that's through right. through my postdoc with Steve that I got introduced to yeah. Norilsk.
0: Right. Which is, you know, maybe you can tell people for
2: those who don't know, a large. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's probably the largest ore body there in terms of nickel copper PGE systems. It's located in northern Siberia in Russia. So it's in a a a big place. It's quite impressive when you had a chance to go there once. It's a very, very impressive place. The size of the ore bodies, you don't realize it until you start going underground and you take a shaft down. And then once you're down there, you take a train. And then once you've taken the train, you take a big four-wheel drive bus that can take 12 people and you keep on driving and you're still in the ore body this whole time and like, okay, this is a big, big, big ore body. Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that gives you, that certainly gives the perspective on it. So I've seen references in the literature to, or at least maybe on recent talks to, to droplets and gas bubbles and things happening in these, this system that I certainly never learned about in the early 1980s from Tony Aldrit. Are you involved in that work? And, and can you tell us something about what you're learning?
2: Yes, definitely. So the visit to Noreos was probably my introduction to sulfide and bubbles and what we call drobbles, which is the close association between sulfide droplets and gas bubbles. And so Steve had been working with Jim Mungle previously, so that's a, that's a paper that they published in 2015 in Nature, where I think Jim Mungle and his team had been looking at results of experiments where they'd seen that association between sulfide droplets and gas bubbles in experiments. And right. so our eye was kind of started started to actually look for these in the rocks, because we'd seen them in experiments, we knew they potentially existed in systems that we were uh, looking at. And... At Nurel's, when we started looking at, at the rocks there in the drill core during our field trip, that's when we really started seeing what we thought might actually be frozen drobbles in the rocks.
0: Droubles is just such a great name. I, it feels like it should be a cartoon character, like Droubles Drubble, exactly. is,
2: is going... <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so then that's when we started looking for them. And so we took a whole lot of samples, came back to Perth and started looking at them in real detail. And the observation we had did confirm that what we were seeing potentially were frozen troubles in the rocks.
0: Right. And and was this over an area of sampling that was widespread as a process that was happening everywhere in the system? Or were you in a focused area?
2: Sampling when you're doing a field trip is always quite tricky. And mm. risk being risk getting... A range of samples from all the different ore types. And it's quite complicated <laughs> yes. uh, to have really representative sampling. But when we first look at those, it was mainly in the picodolorite in the bottom half of the intrusion, so the what we call the blebi ore zones. But we did see them in all three mineralized intrusions, the Norils, Talnag, and Karalak. Uh, that was omnipresent. And it's later on when we kept on doing work on Norils with collaborators sending us samples. Then we started seeing the evidence of gas bubbles more widespread in the system, not right. just in those labia ores, but also actually towards the top of the intrusions where you have the, the low sulfide, high PG ore zones with a lot of chromites, And so it's different, quite different. Uh, textures you have out there Mm -hmm. and we actually think that we've got evidence of presence of bubbles in in there as well
0: so yeah how do you know there's
2: bubbles well it's yeah all the shapes of what we see so i guess you know it's very rounded uh shapes and things like that but then for the Mm -hmm. the lady ores what told us that there were troubles is basically you have a hole in the cumulus framework so you've got the olivines or at Norelsky depends on the intrusion. it's not always olivines crystallizing first, but let's say it's olivine, you have those olivines that are the first one to crystallize, so you have your silicate melts, you have your sulfide blebs that have already formed, you've already separated your sulfide, so you have those two melts together, and then you start crystallizing olivins, the first mineral that you start to crystallize. And what we could see in our samples is that you had this framework of olivins, you could see the sulfide blebs, but then around the sulfide blebs, you had a hole in the framework that was now infilled by other minerals, the ones that crystallized later on, like a lot of in and plagioclase, and a lot of very more hydrous phases and phases that you would find in residual melts. So that we've crystallized really towards the end of the um, crystallization process in the intrusion, and so you you can find this little sulfide blip and that will hold in the in the crystal framework from those pri- like the first crystals that form, right? And really just the composition. Like, it's not a gas phase anymore. Obviously, it's all infilled by crystals now.
0: Right. Um, I mean, you're not looking at fluid inclusions
2: from uh,
0: whatever temperature magmas, no.
2: (laughs) No, it's, it's really a textual interpretation, like mineralogical and textual interpretation of what we see in the rocks. And that's why I think one of the techniques that we used a lot that was kind of game changer for us was micro XRF mapping. That's when we started really using it to look at texture. So we use it a lot in looking at sulfide brick and on other projects, but that technique, which allows us to look at the whole drill core or big, even bigger sample.
0: You were talking several centimeters across or more. Yeah. Uh, really yes, big yes. Scale samples, yeah, So,
2: right. 15 to 20 centimeters long half cut drill core, for example. And really mapping these things at a resolution of thirty forty micron and getting these elemental maps, that really changed the way we saw things and we looked at textures and some of the drobels we were seeing actually quite big. And if you do a thin section, you don't necessarily have the whole drobel in there. Sometimes you only have half of it. Interesting. Uh, okay. So I think micro XRF mapping with you know different scales is really something that helped us. When studying these textures and studying the rocks, it really changed the way we looked at. So
0: changing the scale of your observation effectively, which is not always easy for us to do that. they must
2: be be very big files, though. Huge, especially when you start going to the synchrotron, which we did quite a bit for the neural samples, just because they're fantastic to look at. They give you the best images. I think all my uh, background for all my computers now are (laughs) beautiful (laughs) mental maps from the synchrotron.
0: So what's the implications of all that? You know, so you're seeing what you think are gas bubbles and droplets and sulfide droplets. How how are you getting at understanding the actual process that results in this kind of frozen in time texture?
2: Yeah, when we started looking at these, we started to try and understand, okay, so we've got bubbles, we've got droplets and bubbles associated together in magmatic intrusion-hosted systems that have mineralization? What's the influence of the presence of the volatiles? What, what happens No, Does it really play a big role or not in our mineralizing processes and and so on? So, I mean, one of the first consequence of the presence of troubles that we thought of, that we published about in 2017, I think now in PNAS, was really the potential link between the Norilsk ore bodies and the PT mass extinction event. And that was just simply because if you had a sulfide blade attached to a volatile, we, was, we thought that maybe that was facilitating the interaction between your sulfides that contain all the metals in those systems and the volatile that then get released by the volcanic systems. Right. And so having this close association means that you can actually float your sulfides up. And then as you float them up, you decompress and you degas. And some of the metals that are in the sulfide bleb go into the vapor phase and then get released into the atmosphere. And that would release a lot of nickel, for example, in the atmosphere.
0: Talking about the Permian-Triassic extinction. Yes. Right. Yes, that one. Just to so elaborate on PT.
2: Right. Yeah, Permian-Triassic mass extinction. Because the Neurology's scoreboard body is formed exactly synchronously with that extinction event, and that's linked with the large Igneous province, so the siberian Large Igneous province. So we think that this potential association between gas bubbles and sulfide droplets would have happened over the whole system, not just where you have the actual ore bodies. And then that would create a huge amount of metals being released in the atmosphere, along with, you know, methane, a whole lot of nasty gases. But we think that nickel that was released at that time might have also played a role in the PT mass extinction Right.
0: So there's a lot of gas potentially being emitted. Can we distinguish better areas or pro- more prospective areas or it's just about the general process?
2: So that's what we were wondering. Did Did the volatiles have an impact on the actual mineralizing processes as well? And so in order to try and understand whether or not the presence of this volatile phase in our mimetic system had an impact on just forming like the oil bodies, we then went back to the lab uh, and that's work that I've been doing a lot with Giada Yacolo-Marciano, who's a French research scientist working with the CNRS mm-hmm. in, Orléans. in Orléans. And she does yeah, and she does experimental petrology, so high okay. pressure, high temperature um, experiments. We started working with her because we wanted to recreate some of the things we were seeing in the rocks in the lab. And she was on the Noreal skill trip with us because she was also starting to get into the world of magmatic nickel sulfide systems. If that's how the collaboration happened. And so we tried to, a few years back now, uh, we tried to recreate some of these drobbles in, in the lab. And what we were looking for is the potential impact of this association, this spatial association between the sulfide blebs and the gas bubbles on the sort of physical transport of your sulfides, maybe on sulfide coalescence, impact on metal transfer in the system, metal enrichment of your sulfide blib, all of these things. And so that's work that we're now doing the revision. So hopefully we'll get out there real soon. But what we saw in the experimental work, so we did little decompression experiments. So have a little capsule, you put silicate melt in there So, well. You put silicate powder. <laughs> you put it to really high temperatures. You put different amounts of volatiles in there to start with. Put it to high, high pressure, high temperature, melt everything, and then you slowly decompress it. And And you have a look at, you know, before decompression and after decompression, compare the results. Right. And what we saw is that, first of all, the association between the sulfide droplets and the gas bubble is always there. They're always attached to one another. Because we, So we did these experiments and we imaged them both using micro CT, so 3D imaging, mm-hmm. to really see those textures in the experimental work. And then we also did micro XRF map, which I was talking about, yep. but this time at really, really small resolution. Right. For right. really, we really small samples. So that was at the, syn- at the different synchrotrons, one in New York and one in, in Melbourne. And what we saw is the, that association between the sulfides and the gas bubble helps the upward transport of your little sulfide bleb. But while it's moving upward, it actually coalesces with other bubbles and other sulfides. And then once you've got multiple sulfide droplets attached to one bubble, they basically slide to one, one another and they coalesce. Okay, so that makes and gives so, you you're bigger... A yeah, so you bubble. get bigger bubbles and bigger sulfides, and it's kind of, a. And you know, as you go up, the more you float up, the more that happens. And so if you always have a gas bubble that's big enough compared to the sulfide droplet, then it just keeps on going like that. And so it kind of collects the tiny little sulfide droplets and forms bigger ones. And coalescence of sulfide house is al- always a bit of a a problem in these systems because we're in very dynamic magmatic environment where if you have a so if you form a sulfide melt, you're gonna break it up and you're going to form tiny little droplets. You're not gonna actually form one big one that's gonna stay stable. They're not gonna stay stable in the magmatic, really dynamic environment that we're looking at. And and so coalescing sulfide droplets is actually a problem in the mineralizing process for these systems. So that could be one of the Favoring one of the processes that's happening and one of the factor that helps coalescence might be the presence of gas bubbles. So that's one of the things that we observed in our right. experiments. Right, really physically observed in three D this process in action. Yeah, a lot of physical
0: processes, a lot of processes that happen at like very different scales or at small scales, which then also occur over very large scales.
2: Same thing at risk as well. I mean, uh, one big big thing in the real-scale thing is the fact that it's intruding into these really anhydrite and coal and organic rich uh, sediments. And that right. has a huge impact on the actual presence of a volatile phase in the systems. The intrusions that are, are hosted within anhydrite rich layers and cold rich layers or sedimentary layers that are rich in organic um, matter. And and that's what that jada has been doing and she's been looking at really the assimilation of the country rock and how that plays a role in the chemistry of the magma. And and that it had a huge impact. And there's a lot of things that I think we still don't quite understand, but if you assimilate a lot of anhydrides, a lot of SO2, you're going to increase the sulfur capacity of your melt. And so you're going to be able to actually put a lot more sulfur in your uh, mastic melt than you normally would because you're oxidizing your system at the same time. And so if, let's say, you've got your intrusion, you're first to do that, you increase the sulfur content of your melt, but then suddenly you start eroding or including organic rich matter in your system because you're arrived on a, in a horizon that's now reached in coal, for example. And when you assimilate that into your mass, then you suddenly reduce your system and suddenly your sulfur is not happening being in the mouth anymore. And that's when you get a whole lot of sulfides. And so I think at Noreal, it's quite complex, but my feeling and talking for myself is that it's no coincidence that these massive ore bodies are forming where they are forming. And I definitely think that the assimilation of this country rocks has a massive role in why we're forming such a huge ore body like you assimilate a whole lot of sulfur and then you suddenly reduce it and you get sulfides you got so much volatiles in the system i think it's like a perfect storm to cap this episode
0: off we spoke to a keynote speaker for the early career platinum symposium coming up in May, 2022, who is asking fundamental questions that may have implications for exploration and to hear about his mineral analysis work.
3: Yeah, so my name is Eduardo Mansur, I'm 28 years old. I've studied geology in Brazil at uh, the capital of Brazil, Brasília, Universidade de Brasília. It's very it's called in Portuguese.
0: The famous city that's laid out like an airplane.
3: Exactly, so yeah, Brasília has the design of an airplane. I've studied in the right wing, if we want to put it that way. So we have uh, the university in the right wing of the plane. I did my bachelor's in geology there. And after, at the end of my bachelor's, I worked a little bit uh, with exploration. And I got in touch with uh, my supervisor of a master's at the end of my undergraduate students, which is César Ferreira Filho, I worked with Nickel Copper PGE in Brazil for done extensive work there. And then at the time he had this project to study what we call the Luanga deposit. It's a PGE deposit in South America, where I did my project in collaboration with Vale in Brazil. This deposit is located from some may know the Carajás mineral province. So it's been well known for the iron deposits and the IOCG deposits. But I've studied one of these PGE deposits. It's the largest in South America so far. After that, I decided that I would pursue a little bit more into the academic side. So I wanted to keep into the magmatic sulfide world. So I contacted Sarah Jane Barnes at Chiquidimi in Canada, and I went to do my PhD there. At this stage, we decided to study some semi-metals, so selenium, tellurium, arsenic, bismuth, which we then call TABs, each letter is an abbreviation of one element. And we also did a lot of work with mineral chemistry, specifically in sulfide mineral chemistry. So my, the main interests were to try to see which processes we could try to trace back using either these elements in sulfides or in whole rock. That was the, the main idea of say, okay, how do different crystal contamination, exp- evolution of a deposit, where this could lead us in terms of how could it be registered in composition of minerals.
0: Right. So hang on a second. You went from Brazil to Hmm? Chukurumi. Yeah. So what what was that transition like to Quebec?
3: Yeah. You learned about cold. (laughs) Yeah. I discovered the cold existed actually brazil is a pretty warm place not as the warmest in brazil but it's pretty warm uh actually i didn't i must confess that i i wanted to work with sarah i, I look for the person and less for the place right so i just look at okay i want to i read a lot of sarah's work and her students and i found it very interesting especially this part of trace elements so i contacted her and i must say i didn't really pay much attention to the climate or, or any other parameter until it was minus 20, minus 30. I said, Yeah, okay, maybe uh, yeah, I should have considered. But, anyways, <laughs> I got adapted to it. It was, it was fine. And it prepared me for the future, let's yeah, say.
0: Right. <laughs> so
3: it, it was all right. But then I finished the PhD there at Chikudmi after four long winters and started looking for a postdoc. I talked with the other Sarah there. Sarah and together with her we got involved into a project which is partially funded by uh, Centaurus, an Australian company working at the hydrothermal nickel deposit in the same province, the Carajás Mineral Province. So we believe it's a nickel deposit but it's linked to the IOCG system that we have in the province. So it's, uh, let's say, a very atypical uh, deposit that we have in the province. So the idea was it's a very messy deposit. We wanted to have some relatively quick insights about it. So can we try to apply what we learned from microchemistry into the magmatic deposits, into this deposit, and try to see how it compares? Uh, because after all, it's a nickel deposit. So how would it compare to the magmatic ones? So we did a bit of trace elements sulfides, magnetite, apatite, trying to understand the genesis of the deposit compared with the chemistry of minerals from other magmatic deposits and other IOCG deposits in the province. After all, we believe it is connected to the IOCG system, so you have this in there. And after this project, I applied and got a job uh, in Norway, which is where I am now. So I've moved to another cold place I'm working at the Geological Survey, also planning to continue the work mainly with trace elements to understand different processes in orogenesis. that that will be the main idea.
0: Right. So keeping the same tools, but but expanding the horizon
3: yeah that was kind of the idea since the end of the doctorate to keep looking at magmatic sulfides as well but try to open it a bit more to different systems which i believe ultimately can help us understanding the the magmatic systems and other ones i mean i don't see how it can hurt if you just broaden a little bit your horizons it should Mm -hmm. just help in in the end that that's my 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 way of saying it actually
0: so mineral chemistry is something that's been attempted for a long time in terms of understanding the origin of deposits.
3: But mm-hmm.
0: I'm assuming and thinking, listening to you and obviously you need to you know talk a little bit about the tools you use now, but that the the way in which we can analyze minerals now is advanced to a point where we can see enough or more detail to actually start to distinguish different populations or different
3: yeah origins sure so there are a few things in there whenever we talk uh, i'm referring to yeah we are using mineral chemistry starting to use mineral chemistry i mean we're not rediscovering the wheel this had been used for a very long period of time and the, the thing is that we can go back a little bit and you people have always used this for instance in the case of magmatic sulfides a very simple example you can look at olivins. And see their nickel contents. So exactly. you're going to say, uh, and that will be basically major, minor elements with a micro probe. You'd be good to go. Right. Yeah. So the, the yeah. thing is that when this first started, then uh, people started using it, but we didn't have much access to micro probes all over the world in a very readily way. But with time, this now it's let's say a tool that if you're in magmatic sulfide deposits, it's very trivial too that you could look at your let's say nickel content in olivines, And can I see any sort of uh, sulfide segregation signal? I mean, are my olivines depleted in nickel because I separated, saturated and sulfide at some point, and these became depleted. That was one of the applications that we got, and it's very easy to do. Then uh, we can advance a, a little bit in, in time and in the methods. And then we started getting to laser ablation. And then laser ablation LA ICPMS, we start to get many more elements. This means that we are coupling two equipments together in analysis. The LA part is a laser ablation, and the ICPMS is the detection. So you take a laser and you hit a given mineral, let's say in a size of a forty micron spot, thirty micron spot. So that spot is gone, is vaporized by the laser. And then you take this gas with your elements that were sampled by this laser, you transport into the ICPMS, the second part of the machine, right. which is going to ionize it, and then you're going to separate all your elements with one minute and a half per analysis. Let's say you can get, uh, let's say, twenty five elements down to. few ppb in terms of composition so we got out of those only major elements which is very nice and was useful but now the technology advances allow us to get this wide range of elements very quick and progressively cheaper so then the question
0: would be if if this is useful in an exploration context is it becoming more accessible to companies to actually get this kind of data
3: yeah i honestly think so i mean because our role now is try to build the basis of say, okay, we can trace this kind of processes with a wide range of elements. If there can be proven enough utility yeah, for it, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So can you give us
0: an example of a case where you've been able to distinguish populations of sulfides
3: that was useful? I can give an example, which is not mine, but with a very good friend who did a very nice work. His name is Charlie Durand. Charlie Duran. he was... Uh, worked with Sarah as well at Chicudimi with a postdoc, and his postdoc was in collaboration with the Geological Survey at Quebec. And they had these two samples from the Labrador trough uh, in Canada, where they collected several steel samples from the steel samples. They made some heavy mineral separates, found some sulfide grains and analyzed the sulfide grains with no context of texture, no context at all. They just picked sulfide grains and analyzed the remaining pyrite and charcoal pyrite and from the data, thousands of analysis, they saw that, okay, we got two populations of grains with distinct composition, for instance, pyrite grains. Some pyrite grains have typical hydrothermal compositions that were similar to those found in, hyd- found in hydrothermal deposits, and some were typical of magmatic sulfide deposits, so typical of nickel, copper, PGE deposits. They say, okay, where did the samples come from? They went back to their data, and they saw that the samples that had a magmatic signature retracing back with the two of the glacier movements, they were able to say, oh, they all come from this one specific region. Whereas the hydrothermal samples come from a different region. So now the thing is, this has to be tested somehow if there is interesting. But I guess that's a, that's a good place to start with if we want to move in this direction on the kind of study that could be done on ultimate application of this, what we call indicator minerals.
0: Right, what, what it might be able to do for us. So yeah. when you're talking about seeing the differences between the two.
3: Yeah, there will be different ways to do in terms of the sulfides. So the main elements that were different in this case, that show the highest contracts. It's arsenic, antimony, selenium. It's nothing extraordinary. So now we have a good uh, let's say we know what a deposit looks like, at least in terms of trace elements, and the deposits that have been found. You're not the, the advantage with the magmatic sulfides is that they're they're fewer relative to other deposits That's well, true.
0: And the, the ones we know about tend to be large and
3: productive.
0: So what about the small and unproductive or sub economic So
3: to me, I think uh, one good advance we could have is basically, okay, we know what a magmatic sulfide or an oxide from a magmatic deposit looks like. We know roughly what the same minerals look like from a hydrothermal deposit. But uh, does this mean that if I find some sulfide or any mineral from a till that has this composition, it comes from a deposit? Likely not. So the thing that we have to understand is okay. So maybe this uh, chalcopyrite or this pyrite that are found in a teal sample has a composition of a magmatic deposit, but if it would only be those tiny disseminated sulfides that we find here and there and associated with mafic or ultramafic intrusions, uh, they would always be on teal, and probably they would be much more abundant. Then the, the deposit, I mean, otherwise, we'll find the deposit everywhere. So, the, the next step into this will be okay, can we differentiate from this blob of composition of what we lump all together as magmatic sulfides? Okay, how can we distinguish this comes from probably a deposit where this is a barren sulfide? So, I guess that's uh, that's where people are working on one, one of the the problems, let's say, when you start working with laser data and this stuff, is that uh, you generate a huge amount of data. I mean, it's fabulous to say, okay, we got this wide range of elements. It's very nice. But like, when you sit with the data, it's like, okay, so how, how can I make something of it? So you have this multivariate statistic analysis starting to be applied to the field. So, these are the things I believe will bring us more advanced towards this. So, I mean, more accessibility to the machines, wider data availability. And then I hope we can keep pushing in this direction. Okay, compare the sub economic occurrences to the economic ones, use multivariate statistical analysis. That that will be uh, what I believe we can make some improvement to that.
0: Yeah. hopefully hopefully it does have some applications and that the connection to industry is kept
3: it's one tool of many others so you won't like find a deposit because of indicator minerals only i mean that's, there's no chance to me to me it's that simple you can't but you can use this to support some other tools that you have and ultimately if this only leads us to help better understanding or forming processes this is already a good thing I believe. I mean, if we, by using mineral chemistry, trying to vector toward the deposit or aiming in that direction, we manage to under- better understand how a deposit forms. I mean, all these questions that we're asking: Can you differentiate barren rocks from mineralized rocks? Maybe not, but uh, to me, it's the only direction that you can push to get maybe get something that will be interesting. It's not simple, and you won't vector a deposit very easy. But that's the kind of questions I believe you must ask to yeah. try to. There are no no quick fixes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're obviously
0: at the early part of your career. And it's been noted that a lot of the people in magmatic sulfides, the well-known names, are retiring. Where do you think you're headed in terms of your science?
3: I hope that we will get more interdisciplinary so we start to get like to open a little bit in order to better understand magmatic deposits. Maybe you don't have to work only with magmatic deposits. Maybe it would benefit a lot if you get a little bit out and see other communities and other kinds of discussion. I mean, we're talking about the Platinum Symposium. Uh, 2018, there was this Platinum Symposium in South Africa great conference not a big conference so you managed to know many people that you only read the papers about and you managed to talk to all of them but at that point i remember that we were having a discussion of the sizes of layered intrusions people were having this arguments of how big can a uh, a magma chamber be? So how much magma could you have at once? And this obviously is very important for the understanding the process of a magmatic sulfide. But I felt there was a bit of a disconnection between what was being discussed on the side of people that were mainly trying to understand how layered intrusions form and the size of these intrusions and how the magma dynamics work with people. I mean, can these things talk together? How do they talk together? I guess it's just an example if we try to get out of uh, only understanding one specific problem, then we understand. I mean, it's been said, okay, magma degassing—it's very important. This has been known from many deposits and many stuff. But uh, when you start magma degassing, you start forming bubbles. Can this have a role transporting sulfide liquid? Is it so, also something important? So uh, fluid dynamics and transporting sulfide liquid, all this stuff, maybe the timing for forming this layered of intrusion. So, I mean, how, how long does it take to cool uh, one of these magma batches? How big are they? Uh, how, how much of sulfide? What, what are the implications to that, to this very as you say, consolidated models that have been created, so I wouldn't feel afraid that uh, okay, the field is disappearing because you have a lot of great researchers retiring. Uh, I see more as a, an opportunity. They laid this knowledge, very great knowledge bases that everyone have very cool work so let's just work from that and see what we do and i think it's it's just an amazing opportunity actually to see okay to wonder what we will know in let's say 20 years from now 30 years from now that that's what i would like what actually i like thinking about
0: we really appreciate peter lightfoot margot valian and eduardo mansour for sharing your knowledge and ideas in this episode Many thanks also to you, our listeners, for joining us. Please like, share, comment on our social media posts. We appreciate your support. I'm Ann Thompson, and I'll be back again next week with Bill Chavez and Paolo Vasconcelos to explore the nature and importance of weathering, from understanding the rocks you are standing on to enrichment of metal resources. Don't forget to check out the Platinum Symposium run by early career researchers for early career researchers at Plat Symposium 2022. This is Season 2 of Discovery to Recovery, and all the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts, and most other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Goldspot on Twitter, LinkedIn, and their other social media channels to get notified about new releases. This episode was produced by your host, with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Hallie and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds you can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time.